Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Frank Johnson and Peter Bush. Let's get all up into some movies, y'all. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Meet Cute Charcuterie. Get a real taste of Seattle's local cuisine at the Meet Cute. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And this is a movie podcast where we analyze break apart movies to, you know, see what they're made of and all the fun and gory bits as it sometimes comes down to with filmmaking. One of the things I actually really <laughs> like about our show, if I can be self-aggrandizing in that way, a little self-serving, uh, is that I listen to a fair amount of podcasts like all over the place. Like some are film based and some are, you know, political and some are just talking, you know, about crime, true crime stuff all this stuff and one thing that i think we do better than the average podcast is uh if you click on this episode and it's about miami vice and it's let's say an hour long you're going to spend about 55 minutes of hearing us you know discuss and look at miami vice it's not going to be 20 minutes of us discussing Miami Vice and then 40 minutes of us mm-hmm. discussing what we did for lunch and how someone, whatever, you know, farted in our dinner or something like it's going to be like, actual. I don't know where you're eating, but <laughs> well, I'm not eating there anymore. <laughs> Last um, time. Yeah. Fool me three times. <laughs> and so we do like to, you know, stay pretty well on topic. And we do, I would say we do a really, really good job at that, even though, you know, we'll, we'll go on a rant here and there. Uh, but usually it always, almost always ties right back into the topic at hand. And so uh, for that, you know, hats off to us. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you know, there's so much to talk about, though, with films that I think it's like it's really easy to fill an hour. I, we've tried so many times to make this podcast 30 minutes and we fail miserably. I think there was a didn't we do one? We tried to do one in seven minutes. We tried to seven one time. Yeah. And we couldn't we couldn't do that. We planned it. We even planned it. and We couldn't do that. Uh so I think I think we're just really two guys that like talking about movies and an excuse to watch movies. So this is that's just what this is. And and yeah, I can't believe we're on episode 117. That's great. That's great. So today, today, spoiler alert, we are covering Miami Vice. So if you haven't seen the Mike, the Michael Mann version, uh, please pause this episode. Go watch it. I think it was 2011 came out. 2006. Um, 2006. Oh man. Okay, cool. Uh, so yeah, not obviously not the, uh, the old version. So go, uh, go watch that and then come back and join us. Nice. Yeah. We'll talk about a bunch of things. I think, uh, more or less, uh, definitely touch on some of the cinematography shooting multiple formats, um, as well as emulating a style, uh, that I think they're, they're going for in certain parts. Uh, we'll also touch on story and writing, uh, starting deep into the story as well as grounding the world. I think that's uh, Michael Mann's specialty, um, and other such stuff and things and stuff. So a synopsis of the, of the film, uh, based on the 1980s TV action drama, this update focuses on vice detectives Crockett and Tubbs as their respective personal, personal and professional lives become dangerously intertwined. It's written and directed by Michael Mann, cinematography by Dion Beebe, and starring Colin Farrell as Sonny Crockett, Jamie Foxx as Rico Tubbs, Lee Gong as Isabella, Naomi Harris as Trudy, John Ortiz as Jose Yero, and Barry Shabaka Henley as Castillo. Where's you? Right here. And I brought your friend. Oh, yeah, mano, she mine now. Jesus gave her to me to ask questions and find out interesting things. We a couple now. After work, she and me go catch a movie and grab a bite. When I get tired, I throw her away. Her leg in one place, her head someplace else. You guys ever see that? Anyway, she here now to make sure everything all right. Still no shooter. My guy. 
Show him the money. I don't want him. Why? What difference does it make, Sonny? Listen to me, asshole. I do not want that motherfucker near me. You want to see your dope? You stand Isabella. Where it travels. I could definitely finish watching the rest from there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I played that scene just because how much I love John Ortiz, especially in this role. Um, Mm -hmm. He's a really heavily underutilized actor in Hollywood. Uh, You've seen him in other films like Silver Linings Playbook and uh, some other things. Carlito's Way. Carlito's Way. Nice. Um, And he is so good. And he just, uh, he's my favorite thing in the entire movie to to watch, you know, on my part. But definitely all that aside, I don't know if you've ever seen this before now. I don't know if you caught it back when it originally came out, but I am curious how you like you responded to this. (laughs) Yeah, I haven't seen this movie before, but I was interested to watch it because uh, I'm a big Jamie Foxx fan. And Colin Farrell, I think it's, it depends on the role, really. I don't necessarily think he's a bad actor. It's just... Some roles uh, are bringing out the best in him and some really aren't. Yeah. 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 He's a little... He's like a little bit like a watered-down version of Tom Cruise in some ways. Um, and I don't mean that as a slight. I just mean like, like, you know, he's really attractive, can do action relatively well, not like Tom Cruise, let's be very clear, but can play action roles, you know, relatively well. I just, you know, like he's just not doesn't jump off the page for me in any particular role. So anyway, I was I was looking forward to seeing this and I I got to admit, OK, it felt like it was all over the place in in a few ways. OK, let's, let's just start with with. Uh, some of the music choices were brilliant and really made me like pulled me in, you know, at the very end. What a great musical choice. Oh my gosh. I, I forgot what track that is. Was it audio anyway. slave? No, no, no. It's, it's a, it was an instrumental track. Mm. Um, it was after the audio slave track, I think. Gotcha. But, but, um, I'm not an audio slave fan. Mm-hmm. I've never been an audio slave fan. Mm-hmm. I mean, Soundgarden or bust, baby. Sorry. And, uh, but anyway, so, so from the very beginning, it was like for anybody who's ever bought an H, a new HD TV, they come with this setting on them called motion something. Motion smoothing, right? usually. Mo- motion like smooth. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. And, and it's all, it's, it's by default, it's turned on and they do that for a reason because if that unit is going to be played in a, in a store as a display, they want that to be on because normally they put sports on and sports look fantastic with this setting on it. I will admit they do because it's live TV with live people moving around, but they destroy, they completely destroy the cinema cinematic experience of an actual film right? Something, something that's shot at usually 30 frames a second, right? And this is, this motion thing basically fills in the gaps to make it 60, right? Or, or 120 even, it just feels fake AF. And there was like this moment, this one shot of one of their partners, the guy who has ended up flying the helicopter, who we never see again after he's flying the helicopter, maybe like once or twice, but anyway, he's flying the helicopter, that same guy, when he's like planting the, um, the camera, mm. it feels like all of a sudden it goes to that setting. Like it's like it's 60 ghosting. frames a second. Yeah. yeah. It's like 60 frames a second for like a couple of seconds. And then it goes back to this really grainy kind of like feeling like it's shot on film feel, which it might've been, I don't even know, but it, it was, um, you know, at first, at first I was like, Oh, this is going to be good because it was like really, you know, like like grainy you could tell you it was it was moody and then that happened i was like whoa okay that's weird and then they did this weird combination of of locked off and handheld in the same scenes it was really strange it was like i i could never ground myself because i didn't know where we were going next Mm. with the with the cuts right and it's that's not really a thing that i think about you know i just experienced the film I get all the 
the angles that my brain needs to tell me the story. And then we move on to the next scene. But in this case, I was getting stuff from every direction. There was like over, you know, dirty shots from over the shoulder and then close ups on somebody while he's talking to the same guy. And like, you know, then like moving for no reason to some other part. It, it just really felt strange to me. And I don't know. I don't know why they did that, but they did it a lot. I, think, I mean, there were several moments. I mean, and then there were, it was like, I, I just got to say, it was really sloppy in so many ways. The sound was terrible. It was really bad. Mm. It was like, like the ADR was okay because you know they were ADRing in the car. Like, there's no way they could be driving. Maybe I don't know. I didn't pick up any ADR. If they did, like they did it really well because it didn't. It sounded, you know, natural enough to me. Yeah, not me. And 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 then uh, anyway, there were just a lot of things that did not fall well. It was, yeah, the editing was weird. The story was, you know, good enough. It was, it was what I would expect from Miami Vice. You know, they're in Miami. They they dealing with drug lords and they're trying to stop one and you know then some people die that shouldn't and stuff. But at the, the beginning, the thing that I was, you know, kind of like, Oh, this is going to be good. Uh, the reason I was feeling like that is because the very first, I think maybe one of the first guys that dies, he would like just walks into in, in front of a bus or in front of a truck and gets laid out. And then you see the streak of blood. I'm like, Oh my God, that was really violent. This might be good. <laughs> and then the, the, the scene of those guys getting blown away in the car from inside mm, the car. Yeah. And then, oh my gosh, that was brutal. And then you think it's done, and then he gets another fifty cal straight through the chest, yeah. into the back. Yeah, because like, it looks like the scene oh. is settling down. The car is not shaking, and then another boom. Boom. I love the uh, the the kind of shock going through the car itself. Like totally we're mounted. The camera's like mounted within the car, and we're moving with it, and it's just chaos. Yes, yes, yes. I I loved that, and those mm. were all those were both in the more in the beginning. Yeah, and it just got worse from there. And here's the thing. I didn't expect an amazing story. I really didn't. In fact, I knew there wasn't going to be one. So if it, if there would have been like this extravagant story, I could have overlooked all these things, but like, dude, it was, it was a total mess. Lighting wise, the lighting was all over the place. In some scenes it was bright and other scenes it was super dark and, and like unbalanced the, the, um, like I said, the audio was like really strange. The music was played, at really odd times that like made me listen to the music instead of really watching the film. And yeah. What's, what's her name? The, um, the Asian woman who uh, the main Isabella. Asian woman, Isabella. Thank you. Uh, Lee Gong. She was great. She was amazing in this film. Yeah. I thought, I thought Jamie Foxx's performance was okay. It wasn't, I mean, what do you do with that role? You know, that hasn't been done by a hundred other people. But just because it's Jamie Foxx, I like expect yeah. something <laughs> incredible. Uh, Colin was exactly how I expected him to be. I think John, John Ortiz and Lee Gong were the the best parts of this film, easily hand down, hands down. I didn't really, f yeah, I, I don't really have a whole lot other to say other than it just felt like it was all over the place and I could never get my bearings. And I have to blame the cinematography on that. Or maybe it's the editing. Maybe it's not the cinematography. But I I do want to blame the cinematography in that reason why it felt like I felt like somebody oh somebody has a five D get them over here to get this shot because the we don't we ran out of batteries uh, in the Alexa or something you know what I'm saying and then they just throw in this this other footage that had no place being there with like that was obviously not shot on the same camera. Am I wrong? No, no, no. So this was shot on mixed uh, multiple formats, partly on film, partly on digital cameras. And you have to remember, this was released in 2006. And so yeah, the, right. the okay. Alexa wasn't making the rounds when this was being filmed, yeah. which was probably in 2004. And so in 2004, think about digital technology at that point. Um, and yeah. I looked up the cameras and I never held or looked at one of those before. So uh, I won't go into detail about what they were and how they operate. But yeah, I think, you know, for a number of reasons, part of it was definitely filmed on film stock, Kodak, you know, 50D and 500T, which just for, you know, 
anyone's curiosity. Whenever you see those numbers on like a film stock or in a, on a camera and you start hearing these kind of 50 and 500 and these numbers thrown around, that's a reference to its ISO, which is how sensitive the film is to light. And the, the higher the number, the more sensitive it, it is to light. So that if you're trying to film in low light conditions, like in a club, you need really, really sensitive uh, film so that it, their light registers a lot easier. Um, as opposed to in broad daylight, you know, there's a lot of light there and you don't need a lot of sensitivity. And so the 50 on 50 D, uh, would be, uh, the ISO setting, and the D stands for daylight, the color balance, because with film, you don't get to choose, you know, what the, the color temperature is. You, it's baked into the film itself. And then with same thing with 500T, uh, the 500 film is, you know, 10 times more sensitive in, in a sense of 50D. And then so 500T, this is interior lighting. So the T stands for tungsten. It's, da- it's balanced for tungsten lighting. And so if you ever come awesome. across a film stock or if you're thinking about shooting, you know, super eight millimeter. Uh, that's what those, those numbers mean. And so I felt like for the film stock and the digital cameras, they were, they had two different kind of purposes. They mixed in. I think they, they did as well as they could in terms of trying to intercut them. And they do intercut the hell out of digital and, and film, uh, throughout the movie. I think just to try to keep it from feeling as jarring because if, after living through that for, you know, 15, 20 minutes, uh, you kind of settle into the look instead of if they waited every so often to suddenly jump into digital, it would probably be a lot more jarring. Um, I, at least that's what I think they were after to some degree. And so for film, I felt like they were using film a lot for the close-ups. Maybe it's better on skin tones and is easier to create depth, uh, depth of field in the, in the frame um, so that you can isolate your subject a little more like, like you're saying in the club, right? They're doing these close-ups on these people. Uh, and if you're we're shooting on the, the digital cameras, you may have a harder time because the sensor is so much smaller. Uh, you may have a harder time getting depth and isolating your subject. And so, and then on top of that, the skin tone just does not look as good um, on digital. Now it's getting better in like modern day, but in, you know, 2004, 2005 technology, digital is definitely nowhere even close to film. And then I think for the, the digital cameras, I think the purpose they were trying to serve with that is it almost gives it this kind of homemade movie feel. And I think they're doing that on purpose. And I'll get to that in just one second. But one of the problems with, you know, digital, especially in this age with these uh, two thirds sensors, uh, not as much depth. And so composing your frame and the lighting are far more important to create depth and visual interest and to direct the viewer's eye, because those are normally things that are a little easier to achieve with, you know, film or longer lenses. And so that those things become really important. You, you can see whenever they're, they're using a lot of wide angles for, for the digital, like you step into uh, the, the, the Kingpin's car and we're just sitting in the back on this wide angle digital camera and Sonny and uh, Rico get into the car and we just kind of hang out there and you can see the entire interior. And it feels huge. The, the space feels huge. We get to see him and the way they're talking. And so that's framed very specifically to keep your attention on him and make sure you feel the, the, the space is, you know, exactly what he wants it to be. Everyone's waiting and responding on him. I feel like the, by the way, I, I, I love that guy. That guy. He was great. He was so good. Just so like no emotion. Owns he was it. so good. He was like, I'm the yeah. freaking man. And everyone's going to yeah. know it. And perfect beard. Yeah. <laughs> so huge. Just like. <laughs> so composing with a digital camera that doesn't have a lot of depth becomes super important. But I thought it was interesting that, you know, they seem to do a lot of these wide angles on digital. And that seems like a very Michael Mann thing to do. He likes close-ups using wide angles. And I think it adds a layer of drama and uh, personality to the film that you're not going to get in a lot of other films. Um, I don't think even Deacons goes as extreme. And Deacons likes a nice wide-angle close-up, but I think this is extreme even for for Deacons. Um, Not that he shot this. That's the point I'm trying to make here. And so they used digital. It seems like to me what they were getting at uh, was they were using the digital for a lot of the action sequences. 
And I think for a couple of reasons, it adds this kind of live ops feel almost like uh, we were watching desert storm footage. Um, and it just feels a little more grounded and real. Like you're watching a feed from someone's assault. Uh, whenever these things start popping off, if you think about not just the shootout at the end, but whenever they're trying to go after the, uh, trailer house, uh, where his girlfriend's being held, uh, Trudy is being held and you see all these digital angles. It's grainy, uh, all the digital noises in there. And I think it adds to that kind of grounded, uh, stuff that Michael Mann really, you know, aims for. Um, and we'll definitely dive into how he grounds his worlds here in a minute. But I think even more than that, I feel like what he was trying to do throughout a lot, not the entire film, but through a lot of the film was to emulate cops. Like we're watching an episode of cops and you can kind of feel that same handheld camera style, uh, that isn't necessarily always super motivated and doesn't, doesn't try to hide itself in, in a lot of ways. Uh, and not to say that they intentionally get shadow camera, uh, shadows of the camera and the camera op into shots. I think they did their best to avoid it, but they weren't, afraid of it either they were like we're gonna shoot this very uh you know on the fly to give it that kind of immediate effect that you get out of an episode of cops that uh and i feel like they're trying to call back to that cinema language and that visual style that we're used to as you know people who clearly watch whatever a lot of tv and uh, are adjusted to that style and so i feel like they're trying to take advantage of that idea and then it also gives us a lot of visual information with these wide angles, these digital, you're getting a lot of data. And I think that adds a lot of tension to the frame as we're trying to, to digest it all and process it all. It almost becomes overwhelming whenever there's tension in the, in the, in the moment of, is there another gunman that's going to pop out from behind the couch, you know, when they're in the trailer. Um, and so whenever you have this much information, it, you're acutely aware of everything that's happening, um, which is a fun and an opposite way to play it. Cause a lot of other times they, they shoot these tight close-ups, and uh, not in this film, but a lot of other films focus during these moments of tension on close-ups so that you don't know what's beyond the frame. Um, and they try to scare you that way. And they're both two different, you know, forms of getting to the same idea uh, that, you know, it just depends on your style and uh, whether or not you're going to stay true to it. And uh, they did a pretty strong job of staying true to that element when those moments happen, especially those heavy action sequences. As far as cinematography goes, uh, it's really blue, like a lot of ocean, sky. Uh, even at night, a lot of the time it feels blue, uh, except for whenever they finally kind of pop into some of these kind of night vision-esque green textures every once in a while. But it's overall a very low, maybe a medium contrast, not super contrasty. Uh, and I think, again, that kind of adds into this grounded reality that he's presenting. Um, and of course, a lot of handheld zoom lenses that goes right back into, you know, we're, we're trying to make this feel like a something that we shot on the fly. We're capturing reality, almost like a documentary in a lot of ways. And I think that's just not always his style, but in this case, for sure. And while we're at it, just talking grounded, uh, he does a lot of the way he grounds the reality, a uh, number of ways, operational activity, like whenever they're talking to OPSEC, right? And they have to verify their phone lines and whatever passwords, codes, and even uh, whenever they're on the boat and he's like, we here's our code. If it's Tuesday, that means it's going to be the DEA is our leak or whoever they. And so it adds this layer of sincerity to the world, even if we're not always entirely following the when and the why, uh, that's the way those worlds operate. They don't wait for someone else to catch up. Uh, they're there and that's what we're trusting is that they're, they're in tune and they're asking for a thing with a purpose instead of heavily relying on exposition to walk us through everything. And I think that makes sense that really in this case, because uh, the stakes aren't like crazy to understand. There's a drug Lord, but we don't really even care about the drugs. The stakes are so obvious. And this is something Michael Mann tends to do a lot, which is life and death. That's all you need to know. People are going to live and people are going to die. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so the stakes are very simple, very easy to grasp. And he sets it up very quickly with the, the assault at the beginning. Like we see those guys get shredded, like body mm -hmm. parts are flying. And so we do a number of things in there, uh, but it establishes the stakes and uh, it also sets up the, the MO of the bad guy, the villain uh, becomes very easy to understand. It sets up later in the film that, 
this is what they need to watch out for. There's going to be a handoff. There's going to be snipers and they're not going to see it coming. And so we, our guys got to be ahead of the curve. Um, and so he sets up all the stakes in the simplest, most efficient way possible. And with the, the digital camera and the way he's grounding it, it is, it's very dirty. It's loose framing. It's imprecise at times. And he's removing a layer of polish that makes us feel, you know, more unrehearsed and in the moment instead of like, there's this very elaborate dolly move. Cause I guarantee sometimes we're, we're ending an edit on nothing. Like we just kind of pan over, uh, and there's really nothing there. And it's just kind of emulating us looking around to some extent of, you know, drifting off and then coming back. Another thing he really likes to do, and this is something I really love, and it's something that apparently you hate, uh, which is the audio feels true to audio capture. It's not exaggerated. He doesn't do a ton in post uh, to amp it up and make it feel like uh, bad boys. This isn't a bad boys movie, even though you could compare this in some you know sense to bad boys uh, in the sense of cops in Miami dealing with drugs or whatever. Uh, and here, the gunfire sounds like gunfire sounds like he doesn't make it sound like you know some crazy sweet sounding whatever rambo weapon like this is gonna be pop 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 you know that if you've ever been around live gunfire you're like yep that's that's what guns sound like and there's different sounds for different guns and i think he does a really uh, fantastic job of making it feel like we are watching you know uh, a documentary in a lot of ways of you know these vice cops doing their thing as far as grounding goes i love the communication mm -hmm. on the fly i love that you know we're driving boats while we're game planning like at the end whenever they're rushing from the the boat to the the trailer park like we're we're on headsets and they're driving and they're going really fast uh, and they're communicating with their boss castillo and the chopper and they're trying to hone in and they're talking really quick and trying to get information as fast as possible Personally, I love that style of filmmaking. That's much more my my speed where you're not telegraphing your move. You, they don't sit and powwow for a moment. They're like, no, there's absolutely no time to waste. And I, I'm not a big fan of these dramatic pauses as we're waiting for something to uh, the audience to let register. There's a gun over there and that gun could kill them at any second. Like, no, like she draws her weapon and she sets the guy up in the uh, in the trailer. Right. And. <laughs> she's like setting him up and like, no, what will happen is what will happen is this brain will fly, you know, at 2,500 meters per mm -hmm. second. And as he's in the middle of responding, she pops his ass and yeah. it's such a satisfying and all the, and I know you wouldn't complain about any of the action in this movie. Um, that's, what I think, well, I, I assume you wouldn't, but I feel like that's what Michael Mann is always aiming towards. He's almost lulling you into the sense of safety before he brings out the guns. Yeah. And that's mm -hmm. when all the, the fun really sets up because there's not huge emotional investment. And I'll get to the story stuff here in a second, I guess. But as far as grounding goes, he does a really good job of, you know, taking his time in order to set up the action sequences which is ultimately, you know, what we're here for, even though it doesn't present itself as an action film. Um, you'll walk away from this uh, probably thinking more about, you know, the action sequences. And with the real time big gun fight, people are everywhere. Like this feels super grounded as it's almost really, really difficult to keep track of who's where and what's happening. It all happens really fast. Um, and I think he does a really good job of keeping us oriented and understanding who's who and who's who's down who's not but at the same time there's not a ton of pauses as someone's about to die like john ortiz bites it pretty fast like uh he's taking a shot and uh jamie fox barrel rolls and opens him up against the wall like uh which is a callback to earlier in the film whenever they're their first meeting uh there there's that little joke whenever he's holding the grenade and uh he's like people are gonna you know we could all sit here and make some money or you know we can splatter us all over the wall and people will come in and say, Oh, what's this painting? Is that the new Jackson wallpaper? Park? Yeah. No, that's Jose Euro. <laughs> <laughs> and then at the end of the film, he ends up with his, you know, blood all over the wall in a Jackson Pollock manner. So it's a light callback to what they set up in, you know, the first act, uh, which is loose and kind of fun. Um, if you minorly think about it, uh, but everything in the gunfight happens super, super fast in a way that feels logistical, um, and sensical. 
And like, I can imagine, even though it felt loose, I can imagine he spent, you know, a good week mapping out uh, on like a 2D top, like uh, like a football play. Oh, we're going to start here. He's going to go here and blah, blah, blah. And then once you get to that on the day, it becomes a lot easier. You're running your plays. You're talking to, you know, you're, hey, we're going to grab this sequence over here and then we're going to grab this sequence over here. And it becomes a much more efficient uh, way to shoot and probably lets you get more emotionally taxed throughout the scene because you don't have to worry so much about saving gas right you can just freaking go balls to the walls and uh, uh really make it fun and so yeah he's doing a lot i think to to ground the world and i think it works better in some films than others i will say i don't think you're wrong i'm not disagreeing with anything you're saying todd i this is a movie that i think it either works for you or it doesn't and for probably 90 percent of people it doesn't work like for me, this is my third favorite Michael Mann film. I love this movie. I've seen it the most of all his films, to be honest. What? Yeah. Like I really enjoy this movie. Sometimes uh, I just don't get you. I know. I know. I, I, yeah, I love all the music. Uh, what do you love? Okay. But tell me, what do you love about it? Like why, why, yeah. Why this more than heat? Um, or, well, I love heat more. I love collateral more. And those are the two above this. But I like watching this one more, I think, because it's a little offbeat. Like Colin Farrell is doing this, you know, different accent, which the first time I watched it, it took me 10 minutes to adjust. But then once I was adjusted, I was like, oh, that's OK. Like, I'm, I'm in. I'm fine. And we kind of run around the world. I don't really have a good justification or logicale for why I love this movie so much. It's just a fun movie. I love the action sequences. I love John Ortiz as a bad guy. And I love kind of the, the, the groundedness of it. I think it has a really fun visual language that's specific. I don't see this in any other movie that pulls it off at least I, nothing that I would watch again but this it's just kind of like you said it's a little all over the place and I find it fun I find it visually interesting I like the color uh, which might sound really stupid but I actually really love the coloring um, and uh, the kind of noisiness of the movie it feels very grainy um, and uh, the digital noise is fun to me and yeah, so I like looking at it. I like the kind of cat and mouse that's going on. I love the, the stakes whenever, you know, uh, Trudy gets blown up. I love, you know, the, the kind of reaction to that in a number of ways, because I, I really like how he gets on the phone with with Jose Euro and he realizes that, oh, crap, Euro still doesn't know that we're we're cops like we. And it's a really great setup because there's no reason he should know. There's no reason cops should be working on this. Like, that's what I think is really, you know, smart about this setup. And in fact, let me just run through the story in writing and see if maybe this opens up why I, I like it. And maybe I can explain it because <laughs> I can't right now. Sure. <laughs> okay. Um, well, keep digging, man. Keep digging. <laughs> so I love that it opens up in the club on, right, we're, in the, we're on a dancer. We're in the middle of a sting operation. And I like it because we start as deep into the story as possible. We don't open on Rico saying goodbye to Trudy in the morning and Sonny waking up alone and there's a void in his life. Like we don't go yeah. to these really obvious tropes, these cliches of cop movies where we're getting a feeling for their life. Um, not to say that those don't serve a purpose, but they're tired. Um, and even the movies that do them well bore me, to be quite honest. They... Instead, they save the relationship connection for later. Like we have that sex scene between uh, Trudy and Rico. Um, and it's this personal moment with with them. And it's building, of course, their connection. And I love what I really like about that scene is the humor. There's just this little jab of humor about him, right? Orgasming so soon. And mm -hmm. we, we feel her deflate, but she doesn't say anything. She's going to be a good you know, partner. And it's like, that's ah, fine. Like, um, and then we find out he was just joking. And then it starts an actual, the NDRE song kicks in and she is amazing. And I love that. The humor adds texture to the relationship, which I think helps add buy-in. Uh, because romantic relationships are fun. Like they have these fun moments and it's not just hot sex. Uh, and I think that misses a lot of movies that are trying to 
portray an actual relationship. Now it makes sense if it's like the first time they were hooking up, it should probably be more passionate. There's not humor. You haven't gotten to that layer in your relationship yet, but they are at that point. And I love that they inject just a little joke um, that makes me believe that, yeah, they are together. And going back to the opening, uh, so we're starting in the middle of an operation and Sonny gets a call. And this is kind of a classic call to adventure, even though they're kind of in the middle of one. And he takes the call from Alonzo and Tubbs gets on the phone after he finds out like there's something going wrong. Alonzo, uh, Tubbs calls Alonzo's family and we cut to the inside of the house, right? We see the white dude, bald, tatted up. He's got a swastika on his neck and he's got a bloody glove. And so I love, you know, that's very quick, easy visual communication, right? Swastika, bad guy, bloody, bloody glove, bad guy didn't, uh, did something really bad to Alonzo's family. And, and if you're paying attention, there's a, a body just out of frame at the other end of the shot. Uh, and so they're doing these really quick visual communications. That's kind of the nice thing about swastikas. We, as a, <laughs> Whoa. Is, is the fact Whoa. that we can identify very quickly <laughs> who's going to be a villain. And that's easy. I want writing. that sound bite. <laughs> that's the only nice thing that. about swastikas. <laughs> it helps us identify dickheads. Uh, and so I love that they, yeah. you know, it's like, hey, why not take advantage of uh, this iconography and help tell my story in a much more efficient way and also get the audience on the right side of the, the story. And so the call, Alonzo's call, also tells us that a deal is going bad. And of course, we see the interior as, you know, the car scene as the sniper fire hits, which I really love. It's surreal, but it's also kind of grounded. It feels very raw and, and personal and uh, devastating in a way. So after hearing uh, that his family's dead, right, they, Sonny and Rico catch up to him on the highway and pull him over and they're having this conversation. Uh, I love this little shot that happens after he finds out his family's dead. And we see from his point of view, we look at Sonny, we look at Rico, and then we just kind of drift over to like mm -hmm. these garbage or whatever, kind of drifting in the wind at the road. And we just kind of hang out there for a second. And then we pause a moment and then he kills himself. And I love the audio cut on that because we just kind of cut out. We don't hear it. And instead, we're, we're left in a bit of silence as we're watching like this streak of blood. And if you catch it, like his body is being right, mangled up underneath the truck. It's absolutely brutal. And that whole sequence is a really simple and effective setup uh, for where this guy's mind is at after getting news of his family. And so we feel it before he does it. We're like, oh, no, is he going to? And then we hear the truck. And it's just this really very, very quick, beautiful sequence that by the time you register what he's about to do, he's already doing it. And that's the kind of storytelling I really gravitate towards uh, personally. Um, and I see why Christopher Nolan looks, you know, up so much to Michael Mann, which may surprise people. Like he's a big Michael Mann uh, fan. And then surprise me. Yeah. yeah. I love Michael. No, Mann. Same. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I yeah. hear you. Yeah. And starting the, uh, the, the undercover operation is where we jump to next, right? The, the feds are compromised and not sure where their leak is. And Sonny and Rico get to partake in a larger operation instead of just being city cops. Now we've kind of set the stage for this bigger, this bigger thing. Um, and I really enjoy how they take out the competition to create an opening to meet with the bad guys. And so they, they bust these lower level drug, drug runners um, and take their drug load. And then use what they stole as a gift back to the villain as a way of building trust. Like, I feel like that's such a clever turn of not wasting anything. Uh, not to say that this film doesn't have wasteful moments. There are. But with that setup and payoff, I feel like it's really, really smart. And it happens really fast just as a by the by. Like, I think one wasteful moment is learning the bartender's name at the beginning like he's hitting mm -hmm. on her and i think that it works in the sense of we're we're getting that sunny is a smooth operator like he's he's a ladies man normally if you give a character a name it's to give them a bigger purpose and obviously she didn't serve that and so i suspect if i were to analyze this there's probably a few more of those little moments that are a little wasteful but ultimately it's not super detrimental it's not something that you know derails the film but by and large it's such a simple narrative that we don't need a lot of hand holding and they give us none like you're kind of thrown in and i think that's one of the other things i, I appreciate 
about it is there's not a lot of handholding and spoon feeding. Like you're either paying attention or you're not. You either understand why she just got kidnapped and why uh, they don't know that these are cops uh, or you don't. And that kind of storytelling works really well for me whenever I know that I'm in the hands of a capable uh, writer, which Michael Mann is like this dude pours over every single thing, even though I don't think it's flawless. I, I have issues with it. Like there's some dramatic dialogue that definitely crosses into hokey, but because of the tone of the entire movie, it works for me. They don't do it too much. They do it enough that it's like a little eye rolly, but it never really pulls me all the way out. And I'm talking about things like uh, if we wanted you dead, you'd no longer be drawing breath. Um, and it's like that's a little, it's a little too Shakespearean for yeah, yeah, like for what we're trying to mm-hmm. do here. Uh, we will close their eyes forever. Like it's fun. I get what he's doing, but it also is like, okay, like let's move on. Um, and so not all of the dialogue completely works, which is not his normal writing style. He doesn't normally write these kind of chunky dramatic lines like that. Uh, but maybe he's just trying to emulate what he thinks drug Lords, uh, talk about, you know, in the bedroom, (laughs) like there's probably not a lot of source material there. (laughs) And so, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that more or less is what draws me to it. There's fun sequences. I enjoy the boats. <laughs> like I like the go fast boats. <laughs> um, I like some of the strategy involved with uh, getting into the the vein of the the criminal element. Um, I never feel like they're unjust or in the sense of uh, they haven't earned any of their payoffs or any of their moments. I always feel like it's, it's pretty well earned and it's a worthwhile time in, in a sense. Like, yeah, I, I think that's mm-hmm. more or less what all together there's complexity without making you feel like it's too complex. It's simple, but not spoon fed. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's fun. Uh, no, and the action I, sequences dude, no, I get it. Are, are what really makes me come back. I love all the shootouts every time. Yeah. Like they're fun. Anyway, I'll I'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, one, uh, so a few things. One, I have no problem with with bullets and guns sounding the real. Mm-hmm. That's not that wasn't my issue. Is that because like because then when you hear a fifty cal. You real you know that's what a fifty cal sounds like. It sounds like a cannon because yeah. it basically is one, right? Yeah. But but a handgun should not sound like a fifty mm-hmm. cal. Right. So I totally get that. Yeah. yeah, I wish I could point out some moments, but there were there are pr- at least a dozen moments I was like, that's not right. Yeah. That does not feel right, and I don't mean because it's real. You know, I mean because like just wasn't done well Mm. um but uh a few other things that i feel like were i I just want to preface this with i love michael mann i i like his movie did not do well either i think i know office or with critics like critics were not on board so you are yeah you have a lot of good company my friend (laughs) yeah okay cool (laughs) it's not okay here's what i expect so the writing is fine whatever but I don't expect fine from yeah. someone like Michael Mann. I expect heat. I expect collateral. I expect a great experience, right? And what I got was a watered down version of an 80s TV show. I, I got a guy who is smooth and and a good looking dude, a ladies man who has a, a, a mustache and a mullet. Well, it seemed like he had it like combed back on the sides mm-hmm. all the time and then up in a bun. So it looked like a mullet the entire time. And I'm like, this is like, this is like, well, I don't want to say, say about Avengers because I don't want to give anything away, but like there, mm. it is an, it is an experience I don't want to have watching that guy. I don't want to watch that guy with a dirty mustache and a mullet for an for two hours, you know? So that drove me nuts. I have no retort to that. Yeah. yeah. And and I felt like it was, I felt like, okay, if you're gonna, if he, what did he direct or he wrote for my Miami Vice? Some, one of the two, whatever. He was involved with the original show. So if you do that, do something a little bit different, right? Like I felt like it was like this marriage between the TV show and what would be 
this show, what would be this movie today? And what I would like is a complete departure. Like that's what, that's what I would want. I, and maybe he was making it for the fans of the original Miami vice, but surprise me, you know, I was not surprised. Yes. Maybe the story was smarter in ways. It definitely was. I love the fact you're right that we got straight into the meat of it. They were already on a, on a, on a job. Right. Mm-hmm. I love that. Like there's no, no BS. You're straight into it. So that was smart. And there were a few other smart things as well. But for the most part, it was like expected. I knew there was going to be drug lords. I knew because they're in Miami and I knew some people were going to die and, um, and stuff. But, uh, I mean, let's be honest, other than the, the, the guy at the beginning who throws himself in front of the truck, nobody good dies. There's no cost, right? I mean, yes, uh, Jamie Foxx's girl gets, gets kidnapped, but they save her. And then she's in the, she's in the hospital, but she wakes up, you know, which brings me to another point of the laziness. And you know what I'm about to say? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. There's a frame at the end when she grabs his hand that sticks for at least four frames. Did you notice that? Yeah. yeah. Well, they're setting up that on the one hand, he doesn't know that cause that's whenever he looks up and she's still no, sleeping. It's after. Well, they, I know, but there's a setup and a payoff. They set up that he's he felt her move and he looks up at her and she uh, she's not awake. And so he's like, OK, that nerves, whatever, like that. She's not awake. It was the important part. And then he kind of settles back in. Then she squeezes his hand and then she wakes up. That was there was an intentional like double. I don't think he to be fair. I don't think he executed it very well. Like you don't really fully understand what he's trying to do there it just feels like she kind of wakes up but she's not awake and then she really wakes up and it just it doesn't make sense um visually and so i it's you're justified in very, feeling that there was something weird there it's at the very end of that scene they cut away to something else from what i recall i really want to find it to verify if i'm gotcha. right or not yeah i'll pull it up um yeah they end that scene with them holding hands Yep. I don't... What's the issue there? Hold on. Give me a second. Okay. Where is it? It's going to be right around the... Oh, here we go. 2.12.30. Yep. 2.03.29 or something like that. And then it cuts to the to Lee on the boat. 2.03.28 like or 29. And maybe it was motivated... You know, it was like, because then we don't see them anymore in the hospital. That's the very last frame of them in the hospital. But it's like, it just is very confusing as to why that's necessary if it was purposeful. And if it wasn't purposeful, it's a little bit like. Well, it's the last time we see them together. Like, I know we're not going to tie up like, that storyline any other way than just saying that she's okay. And they're together. Like, I don't think cut away without, without a still, like, why does it have to like still frame for four, four frames? If you're going to still like, uh, leave it, you know, I'm not seeing a still frame. Is it just on my version? Gotcha. Yep. You see, yeah, it. I was scrubbing okay. through, I'm, so I couldn't see it. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 And no, you're right. It did bother me for a second in the movie. And I was like, and I, but I moved immediately on to the next scene. <laughs> yeah, no, that, <laughs> You're right. They just maybe didn't have quite enough, uh, runtime that they wanted, but, uh, ugh, yeah. Anyway. Okay. It, so stuff like that <laughs> yeah. was just like, that's what made it feel. It just made it feel a little lazy to me. Mm. Like, come on, you know, it's a big budget film. You got millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars. Like, that's the thing that you notice, you know, it's not like, it's not even like a, a sneaky boom pull, right. which could be, you know, it, it, it could be an honest mistake. Like this is like, what the hell was that? <laughs> so yeah, that, I mean, that's really it. And, and I know I'm tearing it down and that's, you know what, that's fine. I don't tear down that many movies, but with someone like this, you know, yeah. someone like Michael Mann, who's so talented, I just expect you know, high bar, bro. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Maybe I get the Colin Farrell thing. Uh, maybe I'll give him a pass at that, but I just, that's why one of the reasons I wouldn't want to watch it again, you know, it's, it's the same reason I wouldn't want to 
watch the eighties TV show. I'm just not into that. Yeah. I, I don't, you know, like it's <laughs> not my, not my bag. And, uh, and just taking somebody who, who could be super smooth, like really, what would a guy like that in 2006 or 2005 when this was filmed or, or whatever, a guy looking like that in a club talking to the bartender you know, asking her her name. Do you think he she'd really give him her name? I don't know. I mean, maybe if it's Colin Farrell, but <laughs> it's just it was it was a weird feeling. Um, there were some really bright bright parts in the film for me, though. Th- those parts where that you were talking about the part in the limo um, with the with the the kingpin, the the part in the car where they shoot those guys in the very beginning. Uh, the part in the, in the trailer home was probably my favorite part of the whole movie where they, they stormed the, the trailer home. It felt, it felt really real yeah. to me. That felt really real. But here's my point. Here's my problem with the two types of, of camera here is that I, that felt more real than all of the other real feeling stuff hmm. in the film. So, and that's because it was shot. I guess on digital, right? It looks, even though it's like shaky, it looks cleaner than the grainy film. So it, that doesn't make any sense. If like, if you have, if, if you're just a bystander and you happen to like, I don't know, film a police officer or something or, or like an altercation or whatever. Yes, it's shaky, but it's also grainy. It's always grainy. So when you give me shaky, you've got to give me low quality, like, like low, low fi, the, the film. It's got to be because otherwise it doesn't feel real. It feels like you tried to shoot this on a nice camera, but it was too nice for what you're trying to give me. That's how it felt to me. Hmm. The stuff in um, in the trailer home was freaking perfect. And I don't know how much digital they had in, the, in that. And if they did have digital, then explain to me the other way too clean shots that that made me feel off. Um, like at the beginning and those, uh, those other points that you said that you noticed too, I'm not sure, but it felt raw and real and I know it was handheld. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was, and I was fine with it, you know, I'm even fine with the mixing this, the, the static with the handheld. I'm even, I can even deal with that. It's the formats that were so different and jarring and going from one to the other and then back to the one was like. I don't know what's going on here, you know, because I notice that kind of stuff. I can't help but notice that kind of stuff. And so because I notice it, I shouldn't be noticing it. Mm. I should no, be feeling it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. No, you're not wrong at all. Like, I think everything you're saying is completely justified. Um, I think by contrast, that's also one of the things I really like about Michael Mann is it would have been easy to stay stock in trade, right? With, with staying with film and this, while this didn't work for you, he's done this in film since where it really didn't work. Like, don't watch Public Enemies. He takes a period piece of, I think it's Bonnie and Clyde or maybe not Bonnie and Clyde. Maybe it's some other uh, drug lord back in the day, uh, prohibitionist, bank robber, maybe. I don't know. Uh, Babyface. <laughs> I forget which which old timey bad guy it is. but And he takes an all digital approach to this period piece. And it really didn't sit well with me. Like I just struggled. I, uh, and that was for me when he started really falling off and black hat, I enjoyed, but it's a little bit more of Miami vice in the sense of, uh, it's going to be pretty unsurprising. It's a very unsurprising movie. And I think that's a really fair criticism uh, of this film. There's not a lot of shocks and you're 100% right. There really was no cost to their victory. Like they just kind of won and, uh, yeah, you know, someone got banged up pretty bad. Uh, a couple of them did. Like, uh, I forget who Justin Thoreau played, but he got his yeah. legs shot up. Mm-hmm. But all yeah. in all, everyone lived. Like, that's that's not yeah. bad. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think that's all perfectly like yeah. reasonable. Those are very reason. Your vertically is a very reasonable man. I mean, I am. Uh, yeah, I'm a reasonable human being and a reasonable uh, viewer. I really am. I will always give you the benefit of the doubt. I will always try to understand why you did what you did. And I will listen to you explain it to me. And if you change my mind, kudos to you, man, then you had a good reason. But if you don't change my mind, you know, then you did not have a good enough reason (laughs) to do that thing that you did, that you thought was like, 
really important to do. <laughs> Stick with the film, man. Uh, I mean, maybe they couldn't. Maybe they didn't have that much film. Who knows? You know. I think then, he was just after shooting Collateral. I think he was just really interested in exploring more of the digital format. Yeah, um, because you yeah. can see a lot of Hangover from Collateral in this, not just totally the visual style, but also with a lot of the cast. Right, we brought back Jamie Foxx and uh, yeah. Barry Shabaka Henley and. Yeah, this feels, you know, very part and parcel with that exploration. I think he's just been exploring and maybe yeah. he got tired of making amazing movies and he was like, man, I just want to <laughs> I want to experiment and piss people off. I mean, yeah, may, I mean, maybe, maybe uh, it's it's because he's made some great. I mean, Inside Man, and, the Inside Man is great. Yeah. Um, that's the one with um, the insider, with, uh, not not the Inside Man. That's Spike Lee. No, um, right. The Insider yeah, yeah, yeah. is no. with uh, Colin. Nope, not Colin, Colin Farrell, right? It's no, uh, Clive Owen. No, not Clive, Clive Owen. Owen. No, it's it's Matt Damon, right? Oh, good God. The the Australian. Jeez. What's... <laughs> the Gladiator. What? Russell Crowe. Jeez. Russell Crowe. Oh, good God. Lord. The Australian. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't, he may not be Australian. <laughs> no, he is. He is, oh, okay. I think. Okay, he is good. Yeah, yeah. Didn't screw it all up then. Um. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm glad we did it. I'm glad uh, I watched it because I hadn't seen it before. And there were some really awesome things. Like, I got some really good ideas from this film about violence in general in films. I feel like violence in general is done totally wrong. And this one is spot on. Like, when a bullet hits you, it's ex- it ha- what, exactly what happens yep. is what happened, right? When it When it... Like in the car, that's a great example, you know, or when the guy gets run over by the truck, it's, it's a a great example. I love the scene whenever she, Isabella is losing control to Jose Euro and she walks into the room and Euro's bodyguard shakes hands with her bodyguard, pulls his own gun out and shoots him in the face with it. And he doesn't understand what's happening until it's already over. That feels so honest in the sense of, you don't expect your friend to shoot you in the face. Yeah. <laughs> so he yeah. doesn't really understand what's happening. And, to, and then you see the surprise as the gun goes off. Like, I completely agree. Like the way he does violence is to me the way if you're trying to create violence in a scene, this is the way to do it. It's not to overly glamorize yeah. it. It's just to let it happen and yep. let you see it happen and be able to not do anything about it. Yeah. And I mean, even from the onset in the, in the club, mm. there's some, they have to go through a couple of guys to try to get, catch the guy with the girl. And, uh, Jamie Foxx has an altercation with the guy and it's kind of clunky. It's not, you know, Jason Bourne. <laughs> I hit him t- one time and he's down. It's like, you no, know, I got to hit him a couple of times. And then I kind of, kind of like, put my el- my shoulder into him and get him down it was like Kicking a little clunky yeah 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 it was like a little clunky mm-hmm. um and so it set it up really nicely and then every i feel like all of the of the yeah i feel like all the violence was actually done really really super well and that gave me some some good insight into like you know what to look for in other movies like how do they do how do they do uh, uh, combat, you know, and what's that like and how real is realistic is that? And it goes back to the kind of story you're telling, too. Like, it makes sense why the Avengers or Marvel movies. Well, yeah. Punch 1000 people at once. Right. And they all fly away right. or whatever. Like here, we're trying to tell a story of violence. And there's movies that are trying to do like violence. And because they they just go so far over the top, it's hard to yeah. buy into it like you're not suspending my disbelief. Um, now some other movies, you know, they're trying to, it's an action film and each let, as I think we both are, let me see what you're trying to create in this world. I want to grade your film based on what you're trying to do, not based on uh, what I want you to do. Cause if I came in to Miami vice expecting Marvel type antics, then I'm a bit of a jackass. <laughs> like that's on me. It's not on, <laughs> yeah, it's it's on, not on Michael Mann. But if I come into this movie expecting uh, some, you know, fun and whatever, like there's a whole other set of expectations that I think you had coming in that are completely justified uh, and that he didn't meet. And I think that's totally, totally fair. So I love, I love that you know that and you still love it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> that's why that's like great. there's this uh, great Dave Grohl quote about like, I don't believe in guilty pleasures. I do. I believe in guilty pleasures. There's to me, that's the whole idea of cognitive dissonance. Like I can totally watch this movie and understand why nobody else likes it. 
but I'm okay with that. And I love it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> like, I know the quote you're talking about. He, he then followed up with saying Gangnam style was the best song <laughs> of, the, of the decade. Really? <laughs> yes. That's what he said. I was like, Oh my God, Dave, you, uh, you back that statement up hardcore. That is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Uh, well, yeah, this so, is fun, man. So it's great. That aside, what, uh, what are you going to recommend this week? Yeah. So I'm going to stick on the, uh, I, I, you know, what I wanted to recommend collateral, but we kind of, we did cover that, yep. you know, several weeks ago, I think like episode 80 something. Uh, so instead I'm sticking with the Jamie Foxx theme and I'm going with Django Unchained. Uh, I really, really love that movie for a lot of reasons. I mean, there's some stuff that, you know, like difficult. Yeah, it's very, very difficult to say the N word a lot. It's Tarantino. Uh, I I heard in an interview one time he said, and I don't agree with this at all. And I I don't know. I don't even think that um, some of his cast agrees with it. But he wants to he he. Said that in this movie and in the Hateful Eight, he wanted it said so much that it would lose its meaning. Hmm. So I don't know what that's supposed to mean. Uh-huh. I don't think that'll ever lose its meaning. No. So I think he's wrong about that. But this movie is fantastic. I mean, can I just say Leonardo DiCaprio in this film will melt your brain at how good he is he's he's fantastic in every film he does he's probably one of my favorite actors of all time but in this movie he's fan he's just off the chain off the totally chain. different character so, it's nice to see someone to- like him get an opportunity to go sideways yes. yeah yeah and which is interesting because that's why i wanted to recommend collateral because it was a totally different character for jamie fox that yeah. he normally doesn't do uh but anyway yeah Jane yeah and if you haven't seen collateral go watch that and go listen to episode 87 like we cover it yeah perfect, uh, and perfect. it's a fun conversation as well um mm-hmm. what about I, you man originally i started just Wanting to recommend uh, Pusher, which is a Nicholas Winding Refn movie. That's how he made his name um, because it's very gritty in the same way that this is gritty. But after our opening conversation about Colin Farrell and how, you know, some films he's better than in others. uh, For me, I had a period where I just really didn't want to see anything he was in. I was just sick of him. I thought he was terrible. And then the recommendation I'm going to make is for anyone who feels that way. Go watch In Bruges. It's a movie about Bruges, which is in Belgium. Um, It's a city. And he is absolutely incredible. Like, go watch that movie. And I'm not afraid to say that he's incredible as a failing expectation setup. Like, I think you can know that going in and still really, really enjoy his performance and the movie. It's an excellent movie. Perfectly written. Yes. In Bruges. I will... See if it's streaming anywhere. Have you seen The Lobster yet? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fun. Okay. It's weird as hell. Yeah, yeah, it's so weird. <laughs> nice. So Fantastic. Yeah, stay tuned. Next week, we are going to be covering Christopher Nolan's Tenet. Uh-oh. <laughs> Very looking forward to that. We're going to and we're going to see it before it even comes out in the yes. theater, which we had said, uh, I think you had said too, we are not seeing this movie until it's in a theater. There's yep. no purpose to see. And I had so many friends saying, saying, what are you talking about? What if the theaters don't open for six months or a year? I'm like, then I'm waiting six months or a year. There's no purpose in watching a film that was shot half on IMAX to, on your, your little 67 inch screen TV in your house and your stupid surround sound. Like it does nothing for you. And then a buddy of mine who said he was going to buy a ticket and come with us. I don't know if he's done it yet. He's like, he's like, Oh, where are the seats? I can't sit in the front. I'm like, then you're going to sit somewhere else, bro. Cause we are in front row. He's like, how do you do that? I said, because the point is a point of going to a theater is to be immersed in the thing. I want it to flood every sense that I have, even my touch. I want to be able to reach out and touch it. And, uh, and he's like, doesn't it like hurt your neck? I'm like, no, it doesn't hurt. Get out of here. Whatever. So yeah, I'm very much looking forward to this. We've been waiting for this film for a while. So Super it's going to be fun. Don't forget to subscribe, review us on iTunes, leave us a note if you want us to talk about a thing and we will probably talk about a thing. This is a result of uh, YouTube user request. I believe it's Hawaiian prestige cars. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks buddy. <laughs> Assuming you're a person. <laughs> Thanks Mr. Cars. <laughs> your, <laughs> your mother has a not sense of humor um, <laughs> or as a visionary. I can't tell the difference, but if yeah. you want to leave a note, maybe both. 
on this episode. You can uh, do that at thepestlepodcast.com slash Miami Vice. And our quote of the day is from Ronald Reagan. Leading medical researchers are coming to the conclusion that marijuana, pot, grass, whatever you want to call it, is probably the most dangerous drug in the United States. And we haven't begun to find out all the ill effects, but they are permanent ill effects. Now, why did you put this here? Because when it's hard for me to watch Miami Vice, the only thing that makes it hard for me to watch is uh, that uh, they're participating in the drug war, the war on drugs. Oh, yeah. Um, and that bothers oh, yeah. me to no end. But because drugs really aren't that important to the story, uh, it's easy for me to kind of tune that aspect out. Uh, but it also makes me think of as the drug war uh, kind of slows to an end, as it's winding down, I think within the next 20 years, it'll probably be done. But it makes me it makes me wonder how we're going to look back on films like this on so many like bad boys and so many other you know movies that center on the war on drugs. And there's a clear line of good guys and bad guys. Uh, these films aren't going to hold up very well when in the future people are looking at it and saying, wait, we're upset because this person was dr- growing weed what what's the point yeah um, well it's interesting it's interesting that you say that very interesting actually because then that also makes you think let's look at these bad guys in these films when do you really know they're bad quote unquote when they kill is someone. it when you see the drugs or when they kill someone it's when they hurt someone else it's the that you're like oh that's the bad guy yeah. it's not the drugs yeah. because let's be honest most of white America right. does drugs currently. Yeah, right. It's probably high right, right. now. <laughs> uh, I'm smoking so, right like, now. Yeah, Where's I'm my high heroin, right now. <laughs> <laughs> Bring me my plate of heroin. <laughs> what? I don't even know. Yeah. Uh, except for the two here. <laughs> We're like probably the cleanest white people right. on, like, on the so face true. of the planet. It's only because we like uh, working But that's out. really, yeah, yeah but th- I've never actually thought of that before. It's not going to age you, well. You, yeah, yeah. And so thinking in Reagan and Nixon, like they were big proponents of the drug war. I, I believe it started under Nixon, um, but yep. it heavily escalated under Reagan. Um, and it's only recently uh, within the last, I want to say, six years, because even halfway into Obama's term, he was still doing exactly what he said he wasn't going to do, which was going after uh, dispensaries and drug otherwise completely legal uh, state run, yeah. you know, facilitated shops like he was going after and so it took him a little longer than he had promised to to you know start easing that up and i don't want to get into a whole political thing here but even though we're quoting ronald reagan right, right, right. um but all right but i kind of like both the idea sides that, Bo- it's know, both sides it is it's completely uh, bipartisan but i love the idea that he's calling on like so much fear uncertainty doubt uh, about the completely permanent ill effects of we and to be fair there may be permanent ill mental effects of of you know marijuana i don't know i know there's a lot of you know marijuana proponents who would say otherwise uh, i feel like there's probably a little pious uh, baked in there pun ah, <laughs> what what and that's not a to say i've never joke. smoked i smoke a few times a year like i'm not against it whatsoever yeah. but he calls he makes it sound like the absolute worst thing in the world right probably the most dangerous drug in the united states when you know if you compare it to opiates and the opium war and so i like kind of inserting this for a number of reasons just because politicians say what politicians want to get out of you it's never it's rarely about honesty and it's more about their ability to wield power and to get the results yeah. that they want uh, and that's not a transparent thing um, which I could, we could easily go through uh, four or five hours of examples like and I was just about to start and I'm not going to do it I promise I'm done <laughs> okay <laughs> don't do it all right. This has been great, man. This has been great. Thank you for the recommendation. That was fantastic. Like we said, make a recommendation and we will do it on, on uh, this podcast. Uh, thanks for joining us. Join us next week when we'll be covering Tenet. Um, hopefully you've seen it by then. We don't want to spoil anything, especially for, for this for this film, this new film. And yeah, so thanks for joining us and join us next week. Until then, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch the movies.